A few years ago, I was on the board of directors of an organization called Uncommon Voices Collective. It's a Christian not-for-profit. And that organization hired a director, a director of operation, his name was Mike Bain, and I had some conversation. I was, the board of, I was on the board of directors, and he was one of the employees. And the moment I spoke to him, and thought, oh, this guy is not just a director. He must be a pastor. There was something pastoral about him. And then I started talking to him, then I realized that he has been a pastor uh, for around 12 years as a youth pastor and family ministries pastor and all that. I thought I could, I could see that vibe and, uh, and that what he brought into that, uh, the, that particular organization. Now he works for a real estate investment firm as a team developer, it's a Christian-based company, and he is really pastoring a group of investors. And that's quite a, I'm fascinated by people navigating this intersection between, uh, you know, the secular and the sacred, right? And the church and the culture. So I asked Mike to come and speak to us today. And Mike Bain, and I'm not going to give you any more introduction. Mike's uh, bio is in the, uh, in the bulletin today. Mike Bain will deliver, deliver the message for us today. Come on, Mike. Uh, thank you so much, Pastor Matthew John. I am incredibly humbled and privileged to be with you this morning. Um, it's exciting for me to be here. I, I actually was a preschooler uh, a long time ago here uh, in the Lake Avenue preschool. And so if you have any new rules that might have a little asterisk, that's because I made those rules reality based on the rules I broke. As we get started, would you please stand with me if you are able as we read from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Isaiah writes, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, every warrior's boot used in battle, and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. <clears throat> This passage that we'll be immersing ourselves in this morning is where my heart has been going to over and over again for the better part of two years. I find myself returning to this scripture for a variety of reasons, but one of them, I believe, is because the older I get, uh, the more I have come to cherish things that can truly bring me joy. Maybe it's because there are so many other challenging aspects of life things that have been mentioned already this morning with the mass shootings, the, the themes of struggle, confusion, defeat, collateral damage of sin that has plagued us because we've rejected the Lord. The sweetness of joy because of those stark contrasting themes that we experience on a day-to-day, 
walk with our Lord have become so precious to me, this idea of joy. To rejoice is a command to return to the source of your joy. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7 is the passage, once again, that has been my way of living out obedience to rejoice in the Lord always, to return to him. A little bit about me. So my wife, Christy, and I, we have three little children. Uh, Owen is seven years old. Levi is five. And Abby is two. I'm the youngest of, of three kids. Uh, and I can clearly remember from a very young age wanting to be a father. It was something that welled up within me and my heart's desire was to have that wonderful and special God-given role with children. But in my mind, there was always this perception, you know how it is where you, you kind of visualize something, and it was always daddy to a little girl. I love, of course, Owen and Levi with the same ferocity and tenacity, but there was something about the vision that made this anticipation for my daughter, Abby, our third, to be so palpable, so strong within my heart. Abigail means, as many of you may know, delight or joy of the Father. I can't even begin to describe how excited I was for her to be in my arms for the first time. In fact, Christy bought me uh, this shirt for Abby, and it's called a, it's a kangaroo shirt. It literally has a flap that opens in the front, and you can nestle your newborn right here. You like pull the little straps tight, and she's just... Uh, like new parents, anyone who's ever held a, a newborn understands that feeling of having a life that is breathing in front of you, that you've been charged to care for, you know, speaking these things over her, my love for her, God's love for her, her brothers crowding around to experience what it means to be a big brother to this little girl. It also serves as a barrier between me and my relatives who come to try to steal her. Okay, like they have mastered, my mother-in-law specifically, she has mastered this very sweet smile as she approaches the baby, takes her from my arms, oh, smiles, and just walks away to the other side. It's this lift and leave technique that she has mastered. And so having this kangaroo shirt was a big thing for me to keep her close. But uh, you can say what you want about them. We have to be careful because those thieves are also free babysitters. So we can't get too poignant with that moment. Of course, I have to let her go at times. Even though we had known about Abby's future arrival into this world, the days of the pregnancy were not always characterized by joy, especially for my wife, Christy. There's the nausea, vomiting, right? Aches and pains and difficulty sleeping, growing discomfort, extra doctor's visits and appointments, blood tests. Joy is not always the experience to this buildup of an arrival. But when we would remember the hope of what was to come, there was joy waiting for us, as if it had been there the entire time. When we would think of joy, I want to be clear now that there is a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is circumstantial, based on how desirable our situation is to us at the present time. Joy is found in something deeper. It's unwavering. It's an anchoring point, point for our souls. 
And I trust that we'll see that as we continue to unpack the passage this morning. Some context about the book of Isaiah and the state of Israel at that time. To put it mildly, joy was not their experience. That's not how these days were described for this nation. It's divided into two kingdoms because of the disagreement over Solomon's successor. So the southern being Judah and Israel up in the north. The ineptitude of their rulers is felt and despairing to the chosen people of God. They're living in an era of darkness. It is from this context that we'll begin to examine this passage more closely. Look back at Isaiah 9, verse 1 with me, if you will. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress in the past. He humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by way of the sea beyond the Jordan. After an extensive description of the distress and gloom which you can find as the connective tissue between Isaiah chapter 8 verses 19 through 22, and then starting into chapter nine, he begins with nevertheless. Nevertheless is a literary alert. It should instantly make our antennas go up and recognize this is a hinge verse. There's something preceding that we have to check out. If it ever starts with therefore, that's another literary alert. Where are you leading us from? We have to look back at the context of scripture lets us know that we need to be mindful of what is preceding this passage. So the distress and gloom that rested on these territories of Zebulun and Naphtali were a product of God humbling the land. This area was among the hardest hit by the invaders. It was the borderland between the Israelites and the Gentiles. It was a major highway that would have served as the route that troops would have walked to get to Jerusalem. This would be the place that they would have trampled, their footsteps would have been indented in the ground, and can you imagine being someone who lived there? Year after year, seeing new invaders come in, walking along your front yard, seeing thousands upon thousands of troops come in to desecrate and try to lay claim to Jerusalem, not just to enslave its people, but to knock their God, who has made a fool of the Egyptians, of many other nations around them, to try to reclaim their control on this place. Imagine being in your home, and that is the territory that they walk through. Year after year, the amount of defeat, how many thoughts and prayers to Yahweh wondering, where are you? Have you abandoned your people? The state of this area, Galilee, then becomes the territory that God chooses to honor in the future. An unlikely, war-torn, despairing borderland far from Jerusalem and the temple, places of significance, that's not where God chooses to go. He instead goes to Galilee, the route that invading troops would take. Galilee of the nations or of the Gentiles because it was surrounded by Gentiles and generally under the influence 
God chose this area to bring a great light in verse two, as it says. There was no great rabbi, no tradition of spiritual affluence to explain why would this be the birthplace of a new dawn? I don't know where your heart is this morning. Maybe you feel like you're in a space that is defeated. Darkness seems to be your companion. Even if it's just because you've been watching the news recently and learning of the tragedies. And you wonder, where, where are you, Lord? What are you doing? I'm trusting that like Galilee, God will show us that there is joy for you and I in the places that we feel have been trampled by defeat. Let's continue into verse two. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Darkness had been their native environment. Walking in darkness uh, was to live in darkness. It was familiar, constant, unbroken darkness with no relief. This makes me think of one of the 10 wonders or plagues from Israel's exodus from Egypt. Exodus 10, 20, 21, God said to Moses that the darkness spread over Egypt, a darkness that can be felt. A darkness that can be felt. The image is that of death and doom and as if there was a dark substance that people were experiencing that chill run down their spine. The almost sorrowful submission to the plague that has been over them. That is the description of this territory that God says, that's where we're gonna do it. That's where we're gonna enlarge the nations. That's where I will bring about my plan. This becomes the stage for God's dramatic entrance because their darkness is interrupted by a great light. A light has dawned, it brings a new day, a new age, hope, warmth, even shock and awe. It's, it's offensive to those who would experience it. It's different. It is so contrast to what they have been going through day by day that it demands a response. Light carries multiple meanings in scripture. Life, knowledge, deliverance, and joy. A major theme in this passage is that God's light invades darkness and ignites joy. It brings about something that was not there before. Only God can make something from nothing, and he does it here. The Messiah would come to this dark region to be its light, its life giver and deliverer. In the midst of fighting a losing battle, we need Jesus to invade and banish the darkness. Picking up again here in verse three. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Where do you go looking for joy? You personally. 
Where do you go? What do you do for that? Maybe even for some of you, it's the first time you thought about where, can I go somewhere to get this? This idea of joy? On the flip side, it's, it's so easy to demand joy from the things that simply cannot provide it. From money, pleasure, social status, but all of these very circumstantial sources have been proven over and over that they will not last. I cannot go back and conjure the same feeling based on the resources that man has come up with. I cannot experience joy because of my handiwork. Which brings us to another emphasis from this passage. Joy comes from God alone, period. It can't come from somewhere else. It has to be from an infinite source to be something that you can return to over and over. It's not a well that's gonna run dry. There is a source, there is life springing up out of our living God. God is the active supplier of joy. Active, God is at work to bring joy into our lives. He has enlarged the nation, rendered strong, powerful, and mighty, not because of anything that the people have done. We have established that. Zebulun, Naphtali, and we can insert Pasadena, Lake Avenue Church. There is no reason, based on what we have done, for him to enlarge the nation, its influence, its movement, and its passion. Looking back at the passage, the light will increase their joy like the joy at the harvest time or the joy of winning a battle and dividing the plunder. These are two illustrations of wild, expressive joy. This is not the mundane. This is not mild excitement. Commonly celebrated with songs and festivals, feasts within the whole community, jumping and shouting for joy, uncontainable, uninhibited, all who have tasted and seen the goodness of God, they have joy as a byproduct. Can you imagine just being a child in one of these experiences? Not really understanding or knowing that when the harvest has rolled in, an entire town is going to be fed and they're celebrating what God has done. Or a war has been won, a battle has become a place of victory for that people and they are hearing both the the sad tears over those who have fallen, but also the rejoicing of the victory that that people is going to experience. Those children growing up in that space, they would talk about that moment for decades. They would tell each generation, it would become a part of Israel's history. And for us today, our moments of victory become our testimony, our witness to a hurting and dying world. We rejoice in these moments. And that is what is detailed here in this passage. This is why I can't conjure joy in my own life. True joy is always a gift from God. It's given through him, by him, and he has monopolized the market. Galatians confirms this for us, that it's one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit living inside of us for those who believe. It's an evidence of our relationship with Jesus. Try as I might, I can't manufacture it. 
I can't make it. I can only pursue the cheap knockoffs that will leave me wanting. Verses four and five continue with the example of war and conquest, but certainly not in the way that we generally think of it. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Midian's defeat is an allusion to Judges 7. It's when Gideon had assembled this large force, 20,000 men to go out into battle and then God dwindled it down to 10,000. Nope. We don't, we don't need that, said the Lord. 10,000, okay? 300 against thousands. Why did God do this? To make it clear that the battle would not be won on the foundation of weaponry, soldiers, or human strategy. God is the victor and will receive all glory as the new victorious kingdom of light will dawn in the northern borderlands, absence from any help from mighty Jerusalem. The rod of the oppressor denotes bondage, servitude, which is driven further by the yoke that burdens them, the weight and heaviness that they carry. Also, a yoke was used in cattle or oxen to steer them in the right direction. In this case, it could be argued that this direction was going toward darkness and leading to certain destruction. This yoke is gonna be lifted, freeing them from defeat, and they're trudging toward a joyless ending. I need to pause for a moment because it's Memorial Day and recognize, once again, the number of lives that have been lost The collateral damage of sin is defeated with one name on a memorial who is still alive, King Jesus. <clears throat> Before a life surrender to Jesus, we carry that same burden, that same yoke rests upon our shoulders, the rod of the oppressor continually keeping us in a disfigured form. God knows our helpless state and he sends a great light to be our joy. Verse five tells us that with the arrival of the great light, the tools for warfare will be destroyed. We won't have another war when his kingdom comes to full fruition. The Messiah will do away with Israel's consistent instructions for military conquest. Peace would be introduced without conflict. A completely foreign idea, all armor burnt in the fire as if having no use any longer. The bloodied garments and war boots consumed. This is, a, this is reinforced in a couple chapters over, Isaiah 11, verses 6 through 7 confirms that the Messiah would gain victory for his kingdom without the use of hostile arms. That's the war I want to see. 
continue to be one in people's hearts. This Messiah then is introduced in verse six. If you have your Bibles, I do wanna invite you to read with me verse six. It's a very familiar passage. Let's read it together. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I'm sure that the organ could really give us some great background music and we get the choir up here for that moment, but the overall section is God giving a kingdom-wide pronouncement full of pomp and circumstance. This would have been experienced in great jubilation. You know, we see in scripture, the throne room fills with smoke and it's thundering at the presence of the Lord. Can you imagine Yahweh speaking out these names over his son? How crazy the experience would be, the declarations rolling off of Whatever his tongue happens to look like or is or just being spirit himself, Yahweh is screaming out this. Wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this everlasting father and this prince of peace. When it says the government will be on his shoulders, oh, I long to see the fullness of that. This is one of those passages, by the way, where it's a prophecy that is both now and not fully yet. Now we are continuing to experience what it means to have a Christ crucified, risen, and now at the right hand of the Father in heaven, constantly screaming out not just his own name, your name, interceding on behalf of each of us to the Father for those who believe. The government resting on his shoulders, this is beyond politics. All authority given to him to govern all things. Everything rests under him. That is our Messiah. Amongst the political unrest, the long line of inept, ungodly, imperfect kings of Israel, the one true leader has risen from the darkness in glorious light. That promise is a reason for joy. Christy and I uh, thought long and hard about the names of our three children, especially because I've known so many different uh, children my, through middle school and high school ministry. Chuck, you might be able to identify with this. There's just certain names that take on a certain connotation. Positive, negative, neutral, we won't go to the judgment space, but we have that, right? So I, I've known so many children and, and had so many experiences with that. We were like, what, what are we gonna name our children? And uh, when we sat down and we, we talked about it, came up with these two names for our boys. Owen Bruce means young warrior ruler. And he is that as the oldest and taking care of everyone and standing up for what's right, even though it's hard. Levi Samuel means attached, and he who hears. One out of two is not bad. I mean, he's attached, that's for sure. We're working on the hearing stages with him, but, oh man, Levi Samuel, I love that boy. 
But he has a gift when it comes to pretending like he can't hear. It's maybe God's ironic humor uh, in the naming of our son. For some reason, though, when we were teaching the boys to say their names, their full names, right, with the middle name and everything in there, um, we taught them in the form of an excited introduction. It just kind of happened. My wife uh, spearheaded this moment. So the four of us would sit around our dining table, and Christy and I would start off, and we would start drumming. And now, introducing Owen, Bruce, Bain. And we would all shout and scream, and their eyes would light up because someone's saying their name. It's this excited moment. And I believe after we would go around doing that at our table and everyone's getting their name shouted and cheering, in verse six, when Jesus' titles are given in succession, it says, his name shall be called. The Father is calling him these things. This is not Jesus' earthly name, but rather his characteristics and the fruit of his being. To drive it even further, his name, Emmanuel, God with us, which we spoke about this morning, and Chuck did the amazing job of keeping us in that moment where we reflected on the fact that God is with us. When God, when Yahweh is calling this out over Jesus, this is proud Papa doing the intro for his son, King Jesus. There's probably some intense background music, right? Heaven announcing their Messiah, their King, you better believe there's some shouting going on some spontaneous praise and loud music when Jesus is stepping onto the scene, Yahweh is emphatically pronouncing that Jesus will forever be the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. And he will carry that for eternity. Wonderful counselor, as we examine some of these specific characteristics, there are some translations that put a comma between wonderful and counselor. If you, actually, if you look down in your Bibles, there's a lot of little notes that you might see at the bottom of the page where that is expressed. Because a legitimate, distinct characteristic of the person of Jesus is how much we will simply be in wonder at who he is. Just sit in wonder that we would behold the Son of God happened all the time in the Gospels. Jesus would do something miraculous and the crowd would, or the disciples would say, who is this man? Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? Or surely he is the son of God. We will wonder simply at who he is. Moving on to Jesus as counselor, he taught with authority. People were amazed at his ability to understand the law, to teach. Jesus was a preacher, friends. He preached throughout the towns and regions announcing his arrival and the kingdom of heaven being at their fingertips. That's what he meant when he would say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's literally within your grasp. Why? Because I'm here. Because I'm with you. Through the Holy Spirit, we have that same promise. Jesus was present and active in the planning of our redemption. He wasn't a puppet. He wasn't going to the cross to die for our sins because he didn't want to. 
Yes, he said, let, you know, this cup, but that was all about God. If there's any other way, but then, of course, no, that's the humanity and the deity of Jesus in full display. He was going to get to that hill to die for us, to win a war with just one casualty, and yet he would still rise. The perfect counselor whose plans can never fail or fall short, this counsel is continually offered to us through the Holy Spirit and the word of God. Return to this source and you will find joy. Next, Jesus is called mighty God. This child will be born as a light to the darkness is actually called God by Yahweh. This never happened with any of his other anointed peoples, Abraham, Moses, even David. None of them were called God separating his holiness. The Messiah's divine nature would be expressed through strength, authority, and power. Jesus consistently and continually displaying his might over the spiritual, the earthly realms, forgiving sins, healing the sick, commanding nature, and even conquering death. Which is why he is then called the everlasting father also translated as the man abiding forever. Or the, sorry, or, or the father of the everlasting age. The creator or inventor of something is often called the father. So Jesus is the author of the everlasting age or it could also be translated as the father of eternity. He's ushering us in to his presence for all time. We ride the coattails of his victory as his followers. The covenant with Abraham and the law given to Israel through Moses was always meant to be fulfilled with the dawn of a new age. The reality of this new everlasting age will go on forever. One of those realities is peace, which is why the last title for the Messiah is the Prince of Peace. Jesus would make it his business to restore and perpetuate peace. A massive distinction between the Messiah King and all other rulers who expanded their kingdoms through violence and the spill blood of others. He would bring rest for his oppressed people. The tools were already now burnt up in the, in the fire to be consumed for warfare. This of course disappointed all the hopes of the Jewish nation, who in spite of the prophecies about his peaceful character, expected a conquering militant king. These characteristics, though, speak to a higher nature that is beyond human ability to understand until we experience it. Not simply meeting the standards of the golden age of Israel and their beloved historical persons, but shattering and replacing that standard. This child would be holy and in the same category as Yahweh because he is called God by God himself. We'll finish our time here together in verse seven and this is my favorite piece of the passage. This is where I return over and over knowing this about my Lord and Savior Jesus. Verse seven, 
of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And then the closing piece, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Again, this prophecy will be experienced and completed in fullness later on. He will limitlessly expand his influence and create peace without end. The kingdom will be established and maintained by justice and righteousness of which we run in short supply on this earth. Only God is righteous. Sinful man is not capable of these foundational pieces for our kingdom. No one will be able to successfully oppose his authority or undermine his effort. And that last line, once again, verse seven, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. It is the object of his intense desire. It is his passion to bring joy to his created children. That is what will accomplish all these things, not warfare, not our jumping into the mix to do X, Y, and Z, simply his burning desire to end this collateral damage of sin, the suffering that we experience. So why, why do I return to this all the time? It's because I'm usually doing it when my zeal has run out. I don't have the passion, I don't have the drive, I'm not able because of tiredness or because I'm simply losing focus on what is the point when it comes to raising my children, loving my wife well, being the best employee, helping others grow in their understanding of what it means to live out health that can only be found in Jesus Christ. In those moments when I remember and return to the source of my joy, his zeal is enough. His zeal has been promised to me if I simply come to him and seek out the Holy Spirit instead of starving that space in my being like Paul warns us about in Galatians. Feed the Spirit. The gospel which we have been given is the light that produces joy and allows us to enjoy the victory that our Messiah has won. We rejoice not only in the spoils of his victory, but as his spoils, we are what he won. He calls me a delight. Some of you who don't know me, that's not always true. But he looks at each one of us and he says, you are mine, I created you, I will redeem you, I will refine you, and I will bring about all good things in your being. And you will live in eternity with me as a co-heir with Christ. And Jesus, continually speaking my name to him, saying, no, Michael is mine. knowing that he delights in me, fills me both with confusion and wonder, leading to joy. Whatever remains of darkness, grief, or bondage will continually and one day fully 
banished. It will invade, it will take over. Darkness will have no home any longer. Isaiah wanted to convince his readers that God can be trusted, that his promises for a glorious kingdom to his people would be fulfilled. Their Messiah will reign forever over all the nations and God will establish a period of justice and peace for all eternity. So why should we believe that our expectations for joy won't be disappointed? Because Yahweh said that he has set his mind to accomplishing all these things. And when God speaks, it becomes reality. He does not have words that fall like chaff. They only come to fruition and become history. That is how God's word influences reality. And so, of course, we return to the source of our joy final main theme for this passage, God zealously pursues our joy. God is fired up and determined to bring us that same joy desperately for you, my friends. I want to see that joy grow and enlarge within your community. I want each of you to experience these things, but as we can see in scripture here, we are also called to return to the source of your joy. In many ways, we repent and turn back. I'm so grateful that I was here this morning and I personally felt so um, just enamored by how God worked to make this passage spoken on Memorial Day and also getting to musically worship with everyone. That, That was a very special moment for me. I am grateful to be with each of you here this morning. My joy has increased. And I pray that yours will also, as we remember that the ultimate battle has been won. And our names are now in the Lamb's Book of Life instead of the memorial that talks about the death through sin. Please pray with me. Father, Thank you so much for this time together with this church family. I pray that you would shower them with a call to remembrance day in and day out. Give them a gift that they don't have to do the legwork sometimes of of running to their fullest extent of ability and then remember, oh yeah, I can't do this without you. Save them from being on that treadmill. Save them from the hurt and the extra aspects, the time that will be left without the remembrance of you and who you are. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.